Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. I'm Simon Osimo, and you're listening to the Herbicane Podcast, where I share stories that will educate, inform, and inspire you to live a life of significance. So let me start with a question. You spend your entire life in the age of four wanting to be a professional soccer player. You defy all the odds achieving that dream, signing a professional contract at age 18 years old. But injury, and perhaps your ethnicity as a British Asian, cause that dream to come crashing down a short time later. So when your entire life has been one dream and it's over, what do you do next? Today's guest is Chris Patel, the founder of Tales to Inspire. Now Chris will share how he moved forward when his dream to be a professional soccer player came crashing down around him and how an opportunity in America gave him fresh perspective, a new focus and a new dream to help others never ever give up. But hey, before we dive into today's episode, if you get value from this content, please don't forget to subscribe to be notified every time I release a new and inspiring story. But will you join me as I interview Chris Patel as we discuss what it means when a sports career is over? Well, Chris Patel, welcome to the Hurricane Podcast. Thank you, Simon. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, mate. Well, the the, the starting reference where you've called me mate, my viewers are going to notice that you're a fellow Brit over here, but you actually you are in England. Maybe start off a bit about where you are. Yeah, I'm in a, a small town or a town called Bolton, um, not too far from Manchester. So if anyone knows about soccer, Manchester United, Manchester City, I live about 10 miles away from there. I call it the land of the clouds because uh, you don't see blue sky very often up here um, and it rains a lot. Um, however, it's a, it's home. It's home. Um, and they say home is where the heart is, right? Well, and the reason why I want to address your accent is that we're both Brits, but they're going to notice that you've got like a different accent to me. So you're like a, a Northern accent and I'm like a sort of Southern London accent. So it's always good for my Americans to hear different um, different accents. But, you know, thanks for joining me. And I'm really excited to talk to you because over the last few months, uh, you know, we've been get, getting to know each other a lot more and I consider you a friend. I really do. It's, it's been great honour to, to get to know you. And I'll start off by saying you run an organisation called Tales to Inspire and we'll sort of we'll sort of end the conversation around tales to inspire but it's a organization where you do breakthrough coaching you inspire through other people's um stories and and there's some fantastic sort of introduction stuff i've got about you chris but in 2016 you ran four marathons in four consecutive days so you're clearly a bit crazy but the, the reason why you did that was to create and build a, or help build a school in Uganda, which is still instrumental helping 150 kids each year. And as if that wasn't enough, in 2019, you swam 53 miles in a national park in England called the Lake District, where I can save my American viewers and the rest around the world. That's bloody freezing. Uh, so that incredible. And again, you did that to help uh, awareness surrounding homelessness. So, you know, you, there's a lot of sort of help you do towards others, which is really going to resonate through your story. But also there's been a lot of adversity surrounding your chosen career path. And that's really where I'm going to sort of dive into. So firstly, welcome again for for joining me. Yeah, mate. And you just told my story better than I tell my story, man. <laughs> well, it's so true. It's so true. Um, actually, when you think of it like that, it's, it's really interesting, mate, because 
what you just described is not the person who I thought I was. Um, I was a very superficial, shallow, didn't care for anybody else kind of person. Um, and the things you just talked about, and it's, it's actually really important because sometimes you get a little bit lost where you are. And um, I don't delve on things. I don't I dwell on them, sorry. And you just brought it up. And it's actually kind of given me that, you know what, Krish, I've come a really long way. Um, so thank you. No, thank you for sharing yeah, that. No. Well, 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 tell us a little bit about then. So 2016, you ran four marathons in four consecutive days. And I've got a good friend of mine called James Kay in England, who's uh, one of these ultra marathon runners. And, you know, he'll do these like 70 miles, 80 mile runs and stuff. I mean, it's just um, incredible. But, you know, to, to run four marathons, to swim 53 miles, I mean, but the motivation for doing that was to help people less fortunate than yourselves. But but how did you get the um, the idea to even do that? I mean, it's not something you, you sat at home one day and you say, I know what I'm going to do to help those less fortunate. Let's, let's run like 100 miles over four days. Uh, well, then, if, if we're going into the why and the how and the craziness, I think I really have to start at the beginning, honestly, um, and kind of go from the beginning. And I promise it'll, I'll keep it adventurous and exciting for the listeners. Um, but basically, my first memories on this earth um, are of me kicking a, a soccer ball, right? That's all I ever wanted to do. I was four years old. I knew that I loved soccer and my home team of Bolton Wanderers. I'm still trying to convert you, Simon, to be a Bolton Wanderers fan. Yeah. It's coming It's coming slowly along. Most uh, of my viewers are thinking Bolton who? You know, they're, they're, they're premiership <laughs> teams. You know, so. well, they'll soon know when I, after this podcast. They'll know. They'll buy their shirts. <laughs> and then um, basically, four years old, all I wanted to be was a, was a footballer, a soccer player. Every That's how I identified myself as a kid. Um, as a child, I was Chris Patel, the guy who played football. And there was two things, though, that were big issues. I'm I'm half Indian and I'm half English. So in England, you don't see Indian people playing football. Um, and I would get told, I would get racist abuse. People call me a, there's a, a derogatory term towards Pakistani people that we call them a Paki. Um, I would get called a Paki a lot. I would get told, you don't, you shouldn't be on the football play, field. Go and play with your own bunch. You know what I mean? Go and get, go and play with your own lot. The people who were you um, or are like you. So I got that racist abuse from a really young age or discrimination, however you want to call it. Um, and I also was really chubby child. So people say chubby. I say I was a really fat kid, um, like super fat. Um, and I, I, I struggle with my identity as a young kid, knowing that I love football, but I didn't look like what your typical football player would look like. So I get, I get to 18 years old. No one's believed in me except my parents. Uh, no one thinks I can, I can be a professional football player. It was my dream. Um, 18, I became a professional soccer player in England and I had made it. And not only made it, the percentage of Indian football players is so minute that actually I'd done better than, although there's 1.25 billion people in India, guess what? There's hardly any professional football players. So I had made it to a certain degree, bottom rung really. I got to play against Manchester United, Manchester City, some of the best players in my in the world, my idols, Paul Scholes, Paul Pogba. Like you're talking people who you just think, man, it's great. But I I saw myself as an equal against them, you know? Um, but I have to admit, I, it's a very superficial world to live in. I was focused on girls, cars, money, fashion. Um, I didn't, I have to admit, Simon, I didn't have any of them. <laughs> like, yeah. I had none of the above. However, that's what I cared about. Um, and at 18, I, I was injured. Um, as many sports people get, I, I suffered with injury and I was injured for my first year. 
Um, I was injured a lot. The guys got promoted. They did well. They went up a league uh, to League One, so two leagues below the Premier League. However, I didn't feel part of it. I was injured the whole time, and I, I literally felt lost. I suffered from my first struggles with depression. Um, 18, 19 years old as a kid, and I didn't know who to go to. I had nowhere I could go. I remember starting going to the casino during the week at 12 o'clock in the day and playing poker, not even spending big money, just wasting time. And Simon, I even remember getting into my car at the age of 18 and 19 years old, and I would just drive with no destination. And that's how my life was. I I had no, I was just floating like a feather in the sky, not knowing where I was going to land. Um, and I got released as a professional football player at 19, which kicked my backside. I really struggled with it um, because you get told everything. You're the best. You're a, here, have everything you want. You're going to be this. You're going to be great. And I get it. However, at 19 years old, I dropped out of school when I was 16 to play football. Um, and at 19 years old, I had no education um, except the GCSEs, which really doesn't mean much in England. Um, I had no football club I could get. And I was going to new football clubs with a name like Krishnan Patel, like not helpful. Um, and I really struggled. Um, and then I got a, an offer to go to California. Now, this is where the US side of this comes right. in. Let me just pause in there a second. So I just want to come in about, you know, you said for like four to maybe like 19. So you've had 15 years of all your life is wanting to be the soccer player. You know, you achieve that goal and then to be released. I mean, um, I can imagine that must have been. Uh, devastating. Can you remember the day when you got released or when you realised that your contract wasn't going to be extended? Do, do you know the sort of the date and time when that happened? Yeah, I'm, I'm not good with dates and times. I know it was 2000 and 2011, I think. 2000, I think it was 2011, 2010, 2011. And um, the one thing I do remember is that we got promoted and I, I'd already been told I was getting released. We had a new manager who came in. And um, and obviously he'd not seen anything about me. He'd just seen me injured. Um, and he came in. We we got promoted, so we went to a place called Marbella, which is like a in Spain. And um, we all went on this. The, the chairman paid for everything. It was great. We were all having drinks and partying. We were celebrating and everything. And on the way back, I was the only player to get released that year. Um, out of 25, 26 players, I was the only one. And I remember just crying at the end you know when everyone says bye I'll see you at, everyone would say bye I'll see you at the start of pre-season for the next training and it was me it was bye guys and you know there's, there is no next and I knew that I remember crying and the club doctor took me to, to one side and said just just cry it out mate just cry it out and um so no one would see kind of thing and um I, I, I was it was tough because I I still feel to this day that I could have and this is a could have, would have, ifs and buts kind of thing. And we know, but I really feel that I had an opportunity where I could have really done a lot better. Um, I didn't fulfill my potential. And that's something I've, I've had to live with a little bit. Yeah. And when you look at that decision, I mean, was it based purely on football? As in, you know, perhaps you weren't as good as others or was it your injuries? What was the contributing factor that led up to your release? <sighs> There's, there's a lot, really, but I mean, I remember... If you had to say one thing, why they, why they said, hey, Chris, uh, we're going in a different direction, why, why would you say it is? As you stand here today as a more mature person, why, why would you say they, they let you go? So from, from my perspective, and this will be different from what the coaches say, but from my perspective, I'd never been injured before. Never. 
I was flying in preseason. I was the fittest player there was. There was no one who could compete against me. I was done. I was ready. Every time I had four different injuries that kept me out for about three months at a time. Every time I came back from those injuries, the first time I was ready, I was still going. Guess what? A week later, I got the exact same injury on my other leg. Took me out for another three months. And I remember going from this confident young man, it's like take on the world, to the third time I got injured and I came back from that. I remember training and the ball was in the team. The team had the ball. And I was, in my head, I was saying, please don't give me the ball. Please don't give me the ball. Like, I was so scared and doubtful because I just knew that I, all my confidence had gone. I'd never re, never had anything like this before in my life and I had no one I could talk to about it. Um, and I just remember just being absolutely overwhelmed. I, I had no one to go to. So from my perspective, I, I agreed with them releasing me because what they saw wasn't Chris. Like what they saw towards the end of my career at, at Berry Football Club um, was this shell of a guy who had no confidence didn't believe in himself and actually was pretty pretty much a poor player. So when the manager came in and did see me play after being injured, he, he said, this guy's, this guy's rubbish. But actually, I never really... There was, there was support that was massively, massively lacking. Um, yeah. Hugely. And you see it, the suicide rate of young young professional footballers or people don't make it is huge in England. Um, yeah, like I said, I sort of want to ask you about that. Could you remember that date and time or period? Because, you know, when your entire life is built up to being a professional sports person and then all of a sudden it, you're cut off, you know, you, you're, on, you're on the outside. Uh, there must be a, a great transformation that has to occur just to think about, well, what do I do? What do I do next? Yeah. But hey, before before we move on to America, so I know that's where a lot of the stuff happened. I did a lot of research and, and people that are listening to audio podcasts won't necessarily know that me and you are both um, uh, people of colour. You know, my um, father's Nigerian, my mum's white English, I know your mum's white English and your your dad is Indian. But I did a lot of statistics uh, or read a lot of statistics about, like you say, sort of British Indians or British Asians, if you like, that make it as professional footballers. And in, three, in 2017, there were 3,000 professional footballers in England, uh, England and Wales, I should say. And there was only 10 that were British Asians. And when you look at October 2019, there was another research. And a lot of these are done by the BBC. So very, in my mind, quite reliable sources. There was just 12 British Asians or South Asian players in, in the league. I mean, um, which isn't representative of our community as a whole back in England. Do you believe that your last name or ethnicity or, you know, who you were clearly was, was going against you? I mean, why is there only less than, you know, the hands I'm holding up um, British Asian um, soccer players? And that's a deep question. I know, Chris, but I've, I've, got, to take, I've got to take advantage of the time of you and ask that question. Well, you talk, you talk about the BBC, right? And, and the BBC actually asked me to come on talking about this exact subject. I've been on three times on, on the BBC um, towards the end of last year talking about racism within football. Um, and they talked about all sorts. And, and I, was, I was surprised when they asked me to come on. Um, racism within football is there, 100%. Um, and we can, say, we can say what we want, whether it's visible or not, um, but there's definitely unconscious bias. Um, and unless we accept that, unless we, if the ones who say, you know what, I'm not racist, actually, if you're not even willing to contemplate you being racist or discover or go a bit deeper, then you will actually never know. Um, so from my perspective, I was like, you know what? No, I, when I was playing, I was like, 
I've got, I work hard, work hard, work hard. No matter what, work hard, work hard. I'll be fine, I'll get there. But if it takes me 10 steps to work my ass off, where it's only taking you, Simon, two, then that's, a, that's an injustice. Looking back, I would say a name like Christian Patel, um, yeah, I, I would say there was some kind of injustice. I, I got abused on the football pitch as well, often by opposition players. I didn't play against anyone. You said 10 players there. I think that's actually really good compared to what I played against when I was playing professional football. I, I don't ever remember playing against another British Asian player or, or an yeah. Asian player at all. Um, yeah. And that's any Asian. You can talk about, you can talk about literally the whole of Asia. I don't remember playing against another player who was from Asia. Um, um, so that's really deep. And I think there's definitely a systematic change that has to happen. Um, this because they're playing, they're playing soccer, they're playing football. They're there. I see them playing in the communities, but they they play with their, their own communities. They don't play with the mixed race lads, or they don't play with the English lads. They don't play at the professional level. They don't. Why do they? Why do they feel that they need to play by themselves? Is it because they don't feel comfortable with the others? Are they bridging that gap? Is there a bridge for them to cross that gap? Um, it's it's deep, mate. It, I, th I think it it's. A, it is really deep, but I think it's uh, something that even me, I got praised as being a British Asian football player when I was playing professional football. I got awards, asked to go down to London, all this jazz, right? And guess what? When I got released, who was there? Surely you would want to promote someone who's a British Asian player so I could go into the communities and promote sport to this Asian culture that only cares about education, you know? that It's all about education. For my mind, I was going to be a doctor or an engineer. That's what the Asian, the Indian culture say. You say you're going to be a professional footballer. They go, what? You know what I mean? So um, my dad was good, though. My dad, my dad's a sporty guy and he's a legend. So he was always like, go for it. But it's just the, the whole culture side of it. There's a whole culture of bias and um, it's deep. But I think it's yeah. something we could talk about all week long, to be honest. It is. And I just want to get your initial snapshot because it is interesting. Like I said, when you look at those statistics and numbers, I mean, they are incredibly low. low and I believe now, I think the last one, um, was going around 2019 and is now now around 3,700 professional soccer players in England and sort of only uh, 0.25 of that are now sort of British Asian. So the numbers are still low. So it was good to get your perspective as to what driving that because, hey, you know, you, you ran you ran four marathons in four days. You swam 53 miles. I'm, I'm a black English guy. It's more than I could do. But, you know, it's like it's always fascinating for me surrounding does, does name and ethnicity to play into it. But, hey, so I'll let you proceed now. So we've, we're at the point where 15 years we want to be is a professional soccer player. You get to that level. You get injured, the club move in a different direction, they release you, and then an opportunity to play soccer in America comes. So now you go, Chris. Yeah, so I was struggling in, in England. I was just been released, didn't know where I was going to go. And I remember just being super depressed, man, super down. Um, and I got an offer to go and play in California and to play soccer in California, and it went like this. Now, remember, girls, cars, money, and fashion is all I cared about. Um, go California live close to the beach, full-ride scholarship, great facilities, living in a mansion, um, great weather. And, you, you know, I'm thinking, like, I, I've gotten a picture of American pie in my mind. You've arrived here. You've I'm, arrived. I'm, I've arrived. So I don't even think I closed the door behind me before before I left England. And I was like, mum and dad, cheerio, I am off. Turned up in California. Um, 
and all wasn't what I expected. And I turned up in a small town called Susanville, California. I was about 12 hours from the beach that I thought I was supposed to be at. Um, I was in a, it was freezing cold in the winter, snow everywhere, ice. And my scholarship was lied to. I didn't have a scholarship. I lived in a three bedroom house with 13 other guys. And we, our soccer field was a baseball field. So we had no facilities. Uh, 55 players for a 23 man team. Um, all people from all over the world had spent their savings to get there. Um, and they'd all been lied to by the coach and by the school to get there. Um, and Susanville, California has three prisons, Simon, mate. It has three prisons. And wow. it has the maximum security prison, high desert prison, which were murderers and rapists throughout of all California go to. And 4,500 people in that prison. A medium security prison where another 4,500 people go to. So that's basically 9,000 people. And then they had a young offenders prison. So let's pray just under 10,000 people are in the prisons out of a population of 15,000 people. So Susanville, California is one depressing place, right? And I turn up, I turn up a year ago, I was playing against Manchester United. Now I'm in Susanville, California, with no scholarship, no facilities, living in this house that's awful. Like, honestly, you'd wipe your feet when you walk outside. That's how bad it was kind of thing, you know? Um, and I was down, mate. I was down. I was pissed off. I was angry. I was furious. Um, and there was one guy in our team, one guy, and he was called Gabby. He's from Brazil. And he was always happy, Simon. Always happy. I hated that guy <laughs> i hated him man i couldn't stand him i was like what has he got to be happy about like he had it worse than me he lived in a basement um, <laughs> and he wasn't even in the starting team i was i was lucky enough to be in the starting team and i was like he was like bro never give up and i was like screw you i don't like you whatsoever kind of yeah. thing and one day I said to Gabby, I said, Gabby, I'm going back to Bolton. I've had enough of this terrible situation. The coach, everyone's making me angry. Um, and he said to me this sentence that changed my life. He said, um, Chris, if you keep running away from your obstacles, you're never going to overcome anything in your life. That, that moment, he saw the potential in me when I didn't see the potential in me and actually took me under his wing. And I actually stayed in California for two years, um, which was tough, but actually those most difficult moments, I created some of the most precious bonds. Um, and I realized how beautiful life is. I actually transformed my struggles um, and I actually started to care about people. I started to realize that, you know what, what Gabriel did for me, actually, that is a great feeling. And can I do that for someone else? Can I see the potential in someone else when they don't even see it in themselves? So I, I went, I moved, mate, I got an offer to go to Montgomery, Alabama. Um, so so you're going to all the nice places. I've got to be careful because I'm going for my citizenship right now. So don't want <laughs> to upset my American audience or upset the, the federal government here. But you sounds like you go to some glamorous places, Chris. Mate, well, I only I only go to the glamorous ones, mate. If you ever want to come on holiday mate, with me, mate, you're going to, um, going to have a, a great experience. But I got an offer to go to, to Montgomery, Alabama. Okay. And from my perspective, I, the capital of Alabama, how bad can it be kind of thing? Um, I looked on the map and Atlanta looked close by, New Orleans didn't look too far, Orlando, like, obviously I didn't realise how far they actually were. I didn't know anything about Montgomery, if I'm going to be totally honest. Um, but I knew that I'd been to Susanville, and no matter what was next, 
I've overcome Susanville, California. No matter what I come to, it's going to be so much better. And I get it. Montgomery, Alabama did feel like I was going back in time. However, I was, I'd, I'd, I knew who I was by then. I knew that I, I had this self-generating engine and it was great. I loved it. I mean, I saw a lot of, oh, I don't know what you'd call it, divide. Um, a lot of divide in Montgomery. Um, I saw a lot of struggle, um, but I created some of the most precious friendships that I will forever cherish. I, I had a great scholarship, great facilities, got to play. We did really well in the national tournaments. And I graduated in 2016 with a degree in business. Um, and this is where things really started to, to change. I started to realize everything had been about me. It all been about the Chris show. Is Chris going to get his education? Is Chris going to play football? How can I be the best version of myself in that environment? But I, I realized like my phone, right? I can Facebook message someone across the world. Why can't I help someone across the world? That was my simple theory. And I wanted to do something for others. Um, so 2016 is when I, I realized, you know what? I'm going to run four marathons in four days uh, from the northwest of England to the northeast. And I would call it the, the Road to Uganda campaign. I'd go to Uganda and I would build something sustainable. And everyone was like, you, Chris, are crazy. You're going to run four marathons in four days. They would say, have you ever run a marathon? I'd say, no. And they'd say, you're going to go to Uganda and build something sustainable. They'd go, have you ever been to Africa? I'd go, no. And then they'd go, "What? where's the money going to that we're donating towards this cause? I'd go, no idea. It's going to something sustainable. So people were like, what's he going on about? You know, like, what is this guy talking about? Is, is he talking sense? Um, and I got questioned a lot. A lot of people questioned my actions. And I, I did it. I did four marathons in four days. I went over to Uganda. I was 20, let's talk about that, five years ago. So I was five years ago. I was 24 years old when I made this decision. Um, and actually, it was the best decision I ever made. Um, despite all the questioning, I... I ran the four marathons and killed me, mate. I wouldn't oh, suggest sure. to anyone. It absolutely kicked my backside. Well, let me, a couple of quick questions come to my mind. I've never asked you this. So at the point you ran the first marathon, what was the furthest you'd ever run before before that 26.2? Was it like so five miles, six miles? I mean, as a professional oh. footballer, you must run a lot of miles, but as in a set sort of race and time and duration. Yeah, as a professional football, you don't run. Um, you run... You run if there's a ball involved, kind of thing. Yes, yeah, during like, the game. Your ball is. Um, so it's, and you never run long distances, not like that. You're doing, say, like eight, seven miles max, like six miles max, but it's never constant. Um, so I'd run, <laughs> I actually trained big style for it. I was training in Montgomery, Alabama, where it was flat and it was boiling hot that winter. Um, and that, that fall it was really hot. So I was training, I was trying to train like three in the morning. I was working two jobs. I was the, the, the assistant coach of the soccer team as I just graduated and I was the assistant coach on my scholarship. I was doing a full ride uh, and I was doing my full university degree as well. And I was training like nine, 10, 11 miles a day. And um, I came back to England and like three weeks before I ran um, 20 miles and I thought 20 miles and it was torture like torture i really started to panic like seriously started to panic because i was like if this is what it feels like to run 20 miles i remember i i didn't take my money i didn't take a wallet with me and i took no money and i remember i was running i was about 17 miles in and um there was a shop there was a corner shop we call them in england a corner shop which is like a, a mom and pop shop all right and i i i was like I was really struggling. My head had gone low on energy and I had no money. So I went in and stumbled in. I was like, 
Give me, can, can I have some food? Give me some sweets, chocolate, something, please. I'm trying to run this. And they were like, and they literally like saw me like, they tried to give me everything and I got through it. But then I got home and I felt bad for the next six days. My, my body just stiffened up. Um, and I, that's when I realized how much of a, a difficult um, task, task I had. Yeah. Yeah. But it sounds like your time in America, there was a lot of transformation happened from that comment from what Gabby said to you. Now, he said he was living in the basement. He wasn't on the team. You know, Brazil isn't a very sort of rich country for most of their population. I don't know about Gabby's journey, but I imagine perhaps he was maybe in that sort of lower half of it in how you've expressed what he said to you, that he wanted you to be sort of count your blessings, focus on what you have, not so much what you don't have. I mean, do you see America as being a real turning point for you in your transformation? Is that where life started to click and sort of repurpose what you were doing? Yeah, 100%. I mean, America was the most beautiful, hardest, most adventurous experience I ever had. Um, when I left America, I was so down because it was Christ- it was my adventure. It was my, it was, I got to build my own friends. Basically, I got to build my own family out there. I got to build everything from the ground up. That was my my adventure. Um, and I really struggled when I wasn't allowed to be in the US anymore. Gabby sent, shared one thing with me that stuck with me again forever. He said to me, Chris, he said to me one day, he said, the USA has more poverty than Brazil. And I said, Gabby, shut up, man. Like, you know, you've got the favelas in Brazil. You've got so many people suffering in Brazil. And he said, Chris, suffering at uh, poverty is not outside of yourself. Poverty is within the person. And people in the USA suffer and they have no one to go to. And it was like a big hit in the face. And he, he realized the Brazilian community is, is so tightly knit and amazing and beautiful and vibrant and and i i started to see his point that actually in the us that how often i mean, I lived in the deep south so southern hospitality is beautiful however you get to see that there's poverty there that there's so many people suffering and they would be if they could have dialogue and trust people um it they would be able to unresolve that poverty but because you know we're the we're the us we're the number one like Actually, I forget about that stuff. Are you happy? Are you suffering? And how do we break through that? Um, I think there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of ego. And same in England as well. A lot of the Western world, we 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 are um, we think we're the best, but what are we truly the best at? You know, um, yeah, it means it a lot. And isn't it interesting how sometimes it takes someone who doesn't know us too well, who's outside our circle of influence, that sees things in us that we don't. You know, Gabby said an interesting thing there to you about, you know, uh, really fair. And Chris, you can't run from yourself, you know, whether you're in the US or in the UK, you know, you've got to deal with your problems and hit them head on. So it's, it's fascinating. Are you still in contact with Gabby now? Have you lost contact with him? Oh, yeah. I'm always in contact with him. He's one of my best. Okay. Um, Good. I, I was going to yeah. say, it's great that you know, someone that's been so inspirational in, in your change can, can still be there. Still be there. Yeah. And yeah, it kind of made the power of friendship, honestly. It made me realize that I am very fortunate that I have an innate trait to build trustworthy friendships. Um, and now I have friends all over the world, which are, the, the, their foundation is huge. I can rely on them and they can rely on me. If, if yeah. we might not talk all the time, and a lot of people in the UK talk about, you know what, are you a true friend? Are you always there for me? Guess what? I am there for you when you need. We are completely connected all the time. Um, 
so yeah, friendship, we can, there's so much we can go into friendship as well. I, I do a whole workshop on friendship, um, but it's, it's huge. It is. And it's interesting. I mean, like me and you, I mean, I don't know. I know at some point we'll meet, but it's really weird <laughs> to do a podcast with someone, you know, or becomes friends with, but, but I've never met in person, but there's also a, a deepness to our friendship. But I know that I can trust you. I can rely on you and you'd be there to support me. And, and hopefully you'd feel the same with me. So it is, uh, how we connect with individuals is key in our life, isn't it? And and being transparent and the openness and the willingness to sort of have accountability is is a powerful thing in life. Very powerful, massively. And I think I'm good at re- I'd say I'm quite good at reading people now. Um, but it's my life was governed by greed and anger. So I cared about getting one over on other people. I would want my success at the expense of others. Because that's what football taught you. When the trialist would come in to take your place, guess what? No, I'm not going to let them. I wouldn't talk to those people coming into the dressing room. No, no, they want my place. So guess what? I'm not going to help them get my place. Screw them. So I was taught that I had to be powerful over the powerless, and it was, it was, it was a something I had to unlearn um, in my in my human behaviour. Because actually, it actually is not the true way as humans we can run as a society. And before we move on to Tales to Inspire, I just want to talk about another powerful story that you told me before about when you came back from the US, you know, you're trying to find your way, you're trying to find your employment, you're doing all this crazy stuff about running different locations, and you're working at a Starbucks, and there was someone that used to play professional soccer with that went on to have a career over i think you said over 500 professional games is what this person played uh, and you were serving him or you got to the position where you're serving him at starbucks so i'll pause there and i'll let you pick up the story as to how you're feeling and how that interaction took took place and also what that professional soccer player said to you yeah and, and well remembered mate um so well, I'm a former detective, so don't hold that against me. <laughs> yeah, I've got to make sure I've not done anything. Yeah. On my, on yeah. any, trying to make sure I've been well behaved for the last six months. So yeah, I'm a bad person. I'm a bad person to tell secrets to, Chris. You know, afraid <laughs> someone here. No, so tell tell a story because it's a really powerful story, and also yeah, everything ties into your transformation. So tell us about it. Yeah, so once I um, in 2018, I um, built the school in Uganda. Um, so went over to Uganda, built it. took about a year. I was still working in the USA um, and I was working at a, an Orange Theory Fitness um, as a fitness coach and as a manager there. And I loved it. I was working two jobs, three jobs. I was working my butt off. Um, and basically went back to the UK and went to Uganda to open the school building. It was great. And then I went to go back to the US where my job, my car, my clothes were. I couldn't get into the country. Um, and in 2018... We do like to keep the riffraff out, Chris, so, you know, it's, that yeah, could have been the reason why. Exactly, man. But honestly, when they, they wouldn't let me in, it was like my, I was like, how can they not let me in? Like, I couldn't even go on holiday there. Um, and I just lived the last six years of my life there, you know, in the USA. And I loved it. I'd never, I'd paid my taxes. I contributed to society. And I just ran four miles in four days to build a school. And they saying I'm not worthy to be in their country. Um, and it really hit me hard. I had a lot of anger and I applied, found myself back on my mum and dad's sofa, um, this yellow sofa where I'm feeling all depressed and down. I had all those emotions from when I got released from football came back and I applied for over 250 jobs. Couldn't get a job. 
I mean, what do you put on your CV when you've you've been studying and playing football for all your life, right? And um, I couldn't even get an interview. I was really struggling. And um, I was in the working in the Starbucks. And I got working in, the, in, a, in a coffee shop. And I was serving people coffee. My life had come down to serving people coffee. And my life was so much bigger than that. Um, I was struggling. And one day, I, I was serving a coffee. Like I'm pouring a beer, pouring a pint, I'm serving a coffee and um, I look up and I'm serving this coffee to someone and it's, it's, it's a friend of mine, Jonah, um, I used to play football with at Berry as a professional football player and first instance I was really embarrassed, I was like, oh no, he's seen me serving him coffee, like we used to play professional football together, he's, he's had a great career. 500 appearances playing for massive clubs like Sheffield Wednesday, but also for smaller clubs in the lower league, but he's made a living out of it. Right. And I started to realize like, wow, like this guy has made it. He's lived my dream. Um, And we had a great chat. He's a really great guy. He's actually, I've shared his tale on Tales to Inspire. And um, at the end of that conversation though, he said something to me that the wind out of my sails went and he said, Chris, I'm sorry for the way things have turned out. And he apologized the way my life had turned out. And he meant it in the most beautiful, kind way. He wasn't trying to put me down. But he, what he was saying was, yeah, I wanted to be the professional football player. I wanted to be the guy. I wanted to be him. And now I'm serving him coffee. Um, and it was just like, no one knew who Chris was. Even my family in England, they didn't know that Chris had earned all this money working three jobs in the US. He was playing the league below the MLS. He was doing all this great stuff over there. He built his own community in the USA. Now he's come back to the old normal Chris and he can't even get a job. The only job he can get is working at a coffee shop. Um, so yeah, that that moment was a tough moment, mate, honestly. Um, I, I always say I, I don't question whether I should kill myself or anything, but I always question life. And I never question life more than those moments um, where I really question, like, why, what is my reason for living right now? Do I have a reason? Why am I on this earth? Um, and it was difficult, mate. It was, it was tough. Yeah, I think as people and as humans, it's very, it's sort of really second nature for us to compare ourselves to others and also try and create this pecking order as to well I'm working in a coffee shop so I'm below someone who's an office worker and as someone who's an office worker you feel they're below someone who is working in finance so I think the emotions and feelings that you had in that time would be what everyone would really go through as in there's that moment of doubt oh I'm going to be seen doing something which isn't considered um, you know a respectable income but as I know you would now say someone works in Starbucks who cares? You know, you're, you're working, you're earning a living, but internally how we process that is, is very different, isn't it? Depending on the, on the circumstances. So it's fascinating that he said that line to you that where he was sorry for how your life had turned out. And I really wanted to take you on that journey and take our listeners on that journey because it builds up to Tales to Inspire. So uh, maybe tell us a bit about what Tales to Inspire is uh, and I'll delve a little bit, bit deeper in some of those areas. Yeah, of course. So kind of goes back to the story as well. Like I, I always say I'm not a professional at anything except a storyteller. Um, so my story then was I actually only a day later, I went out into Manchester city, city center. I went shopping and I saw all these homeless people, Simon, and 
And it's something that either I didn't care about that stuff before 2012 when I left to the USA, or it wasn't as bad. I don't know. Um, but the, it was massive. It like hit me in the face. There was homeless people everywhere you looked in the city centre. And I was like, what's going on here? Like, are they all drug addicts, alcoholics? Are they all people? Is it is it them that's the issue? Or is it the, the societal, is it the society that's the issue? So... I have a very, I'm a very curious person. I always ask, ask questions and I always want to delve deeper. So I have a friend who has an outreach group, um, a homeless outreach group. So I asked her, I said, Jen Bobs, is it all right if I come out with you on this outreach to check out what you do? And I went out on this outreach group and I saw all these homeless people. And I saw all these homeless people as people. They were, they were amazing. Yes, you may be an addict, uh, alcohol, addicted to alcohol or have relationship struggles, or, but there's something deeper to that. You're a human. And no matter what, for some reason as humans, and, and, and me at that time, I was seeing the homeless person as a homeless person, as homeless before I saw them as a person. And I started to switch that around really quickly. Um, and I, I run that homeless outreach group every single week. We're in Manchester. But helping homeless people, I've been abused for helping homeless people. People have said to me, Chris, why help someone who's not even helping themselves? Or you can't teach an old dog new tricks, Chris. There's no point. It's an, it's an endless battle you're in there. Or I've seen, I've seen people come out of office blocks and I've seen them spit at homeless people or I've seen them abuse them and I've seen them kick them and, and stuff, people who are drunk on nights out. And so I saw there was a massive gap between homeless people and the society that walked past them. And this is when I decided that instead of saying, like, you know what, a defeatist attitude, other people are correct, I'm just going to accept it. I wanted to prove to people, whether right or wrong, that I can make a difference. And if I can make a difference, you sure as hell can. So I decided I would swim 53 miles of the Lake District, 2019. Um, I think I was 27 years old at the time. Um, and I would swim 53 miles of the Lake District. I'd never swam outside before. Never. My auntie calls me a social swimmer. Um, I like the hot tub and steam room. <laughs> she knows you well. She knows me well. Not so much the bloody swimming. Um, so I, I did it. 2019, I swam all 53 miles of the Lake District. Um, physically, it, it really yeah, it did me. I, my left shoulder went on one of the swims, which was a 7.7-mile swim of Lake Hullswater. It was freezing cold. Um, mentally, it was tough as well. My granddad died the day before I swam Crimmock Water. Um, and I remember saying to my grandma, Grandma, I'm not going to swim this. And she said, um, no, you will swim this. Um, your granddad will want you to swim it. So I swam Crimmock Water with goggles full of tears. Um, and I guess it comes to your reason why. And your reason why. And my reason why was so big. I wanted to make a massive difference in this world. All I've ever wanted to do since I went to Uganda was to make a massive difference in this world. Mm -hmm. And it's been so hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? All I want to do is help people. And it's so difficult to help people. Why is it yeah. so difficult? Um, so I did that. I raised enough money to help 36 homeless people go from the streets into an employment program with an incredible charity called the Booth Centre in Manchester. Um, and it was great. I get messages from all over the world. You're incredible. You're amazing. You're inspiring. I didn't feel it. I'd managed to get myself a job as an admin at the University of Manchester and uh, working behind a computer desk. Yeah, it was a nine to five job. I, I didn't, it wasn't great. I was definitely not passionate about it. I had the same amount of money at the end of the month than I did at the beginning of the month. And you know what? I wasn't living my passion. 
Um, so I realized that I was really struggling. I started to feel depressed again. Felt like I wasn't connected to my purpose. I couldn't, couldn't keep doing these crazy challenges to make myself feel good. So I went out on our usual outreach group with, with Brew Power, which is the homeless outreach group. And I saw a homeless person that I've never seen before and never seen since. And he said to me, stories are the pages that make up this book we call life. And I had a light bulb moment. Now, Simon, I don't often get light bulb moments, mate. <laughs> um, that light bulb very rarely comes on. So when it came on, it was like, whoa. Usually that one phrase, yeah. stories are the pages that make up that this book we call life, would have gone straight over my head and I would have thought nothing of it. Actually, I probably would have thought, what's this guy talking about? Like, but that one day I was seeking something. I, I, I was looking for a better way. And I realized that every single person has a story. The question is, can we use that story to encourage people to never give up? And that was October of 2019. I just finished the, the swim in September of 2019. And within three weeks, I decided to create TalesToInspire.com. Um, so Tales to Inspire is basically November the 3rd. We released Danny's story. Danny was a homeless person for five years. He overcame that. So I interviewed him. I wrote his tale down. I sent it to my mum. My mum edited it. She sent it back to me and I posted it on the website at TalesToInspire.com. And I put some helplines at the bottom. And I was like, let's see what happens. Um, you know, this is, let's see what happens. Within one day, a young lady who was going to commit suicide got in touch with me and she said, um, I've read Danny's story. I felt encouraged and I've gone and got help via the helpline that we had with the, with the tale. Wow. One day. I mean, I was like blown away. I mean, all I wanted to do was help one person, you know, feel better. So when one person got in contact one day later, within three days, Danny's story had been read in 15 countries around the world. And I started to realize that, first of all, maybe this has something. Maybe people are seeking inspiration. Um, but also I started to realize the power of real-life individual stories. Um, and I realized that when I get someone on Tales to Inspire, it doesn't really make a difference too much your background, as long as I have that connection and I can trust you. But the thing is the transformation. Have you been through something and overcome it? And every week uh, since, we've released a tale on Tales to Inspire on our blog that's been for people of domestic violence, overcoming relationship struggles, overcoming suicidal thoughts, addiction, simple things as well, like financial stuff. And one person's molehill is another person's mountain, you know? So basically, since then, we've, we've released a tale um, every, single, every single week. We released a tale since by a podcast in October because people were getting in touch saying, you know what, we, we want to hear these people. Do more, do more, yeah. Yeah, man, do more. And I realize that when I interview people, sometimes I'm crying, sometimes I'm laughing, sometimes I'm I'm up, I'm down, I'm all around. And that emotion from just writing the person's tail down, I was losing a little bit of that emotion um, that I really wanted our audience to be part of. So our tales have now been read in 92 countries around the world. Wow. Um, we've been on... BBC, ITV, which is the big um, channel over here, the television channel over here. We did our first live event, Tales to Inspire Live, in, in March, just before lockdown, where we had six of our inspirational guests share 15 minutes of their tale. And we people bought tickets and came to this place. We, we sold out. And um, it was amazing. I quit my job in January of 2019, my admin job, and people were like, 
how, how are you going to earn any money? And I was like, I'll figure it out. And they were like, no, but you need to earn money. And actually in my head, I was like, well, I've got the same amount of money at the end of the month than I did at the beginning of the month. Um, surely going to my passion, I'll figure it out. And I, I went with it. I, I always, I have to be connected to my passion. because I realized how, how bad it is when I feel like I'm not. So for me, that was Tales to Inspire Now is, is a movement where anyone can come to, no matter who you are or what you're going from, or going through, sorry, that we have a story for you. Not to say, look, compare yourself to this person, but to ignite a spark within yourself because you have this unlimited potential that exists and it's an absolute vast ocean. And the question is, sometimes you just need that little bit of a spark to ignite it. And the beautiful thing is it's unique and it's authentic to yourself. So that's where Tales to Inspire, the movement I'm trying to create is one to inspire people to never give up. Um, we actually released a Tales to Inspire book, which if you're on... Oh, it's got his book there. Look. There he goes. Get in there. So Get it out there. We released the book. I realized in, in COVID during second lockdown, I was, I was questioning myself, how can I make an impact? And I was really like, how can I make a tangible impact? And I was like, I'm not doing it. I want to do something. So I got, I, I decided to make the Tales to Inspire book, which is 23 real life stories to inspire people that there's nothing that they cannot overcome. Um, people from the US, from the UK. Did you get the book on Amazon? I know we spoke about that. Is it available on Amazon or just your website? Just my website right now. Okay. Um, but depending on when you release this, it will be available on Amazon as well. Okay. Uh, um, but yeah, so basically people can get that book, but it's that's where when we was on TV and promoting the book, that's when schools got in contact and schools asked us if we do anything with education. And um, it is a one-man band. It's me at the moment. Obviously, the people who are the guests, but it's completely me. I'm juggling 5,000 things in the air at once, and I often feel like, who am I to do this kind of stuff? And But it's, it's also a realization that a determination and, a, and a, one that will never, ever give up. Like, human suffering is so deep, and I'm not willing to not see the potential in someone else. Now, when you look back against, you know, you said that sort of since four years old, all you want to do is play soccer. You know, we get to 19, that doesn't work out. You go to America, that doesn't work out. Do you recognize the old Krish, the one that used to like money, girls, fame to be recognized? Do, do you sort of still see that person in you or is that just a far remove from, from reality? Good question, mate. It's getting deep towards the end now, Chris, isn't it? I love it. I love it. Yeah. Well, you've done the sales pitch. I've got to tell you back a little bit, you know. Come on. I say, I say, um, I don't think a human's personality is something that one, especially when you get in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s, your personality is quite like a imagine a riverbank. And the riverbank, the bank of the river, doesn't really change unless you really look at a millennial kind of view and you start to see the the, the riverbanks may may change but the riverbanks are usually pretty sturdy and i see that as a personality but the water in the river it can be very toxic with no fish in it that exact same water can be beautiful the bank's still the same the personality is still the same but the question is can you change those personality traits to get the best out of it and that's where i feel that my personality yes I, I'm a very angry person. I know I, I care about superficial stuff and things like that, but I've, 
I've changed my personality to actually what can my anger, how can it create value? How can the superficial stuff that I used to care about create value now? So those superficial things, I've just changed them to actually, maybe it's not superficial. Maybe it's things that are more meaningful to me. Maybe it's more about helping someone else. And so I would say my person, I can recognize that person. And sometimes my ego does get ahead of myself and I really have to check myself. A lot of self-development, I practice Nietzsche in Buddhism and I really, really develop myself. And, and I know that I'll never have made it. The day I think I've made it is the day that I know that actually I've, I'm not going to be happy with myself, basically. Um, so, so yeah, I think my, I do recognize that person. Um, and it's very much in me today. Um, but I just do a lot of development on, on self-work. So there's two questions I've got left for you because I've listened to your podcast. Avid listener, I'm going to say to my um, listeners, when I hear your podcast, I'm like, am I listening to the BBC? This is like amazing, right? It's, it's, it's really like listening to a BBC podcast. And I know you have some challenging questions for your guests at the end. So I've got a couple of questions to really challenge you here. So, so one of them is that we all crave more in this life, be it things or experiences. But what is enough for Krish Patel? What is enough? What does fulfill you? What does fulfill me? Um, Please say that I stumped you. Please say that I stumped you. (laughs) I can't do that. I can't give you that satisfaction. I often say that I'm always happy, but I'm not always satisfied. Um, And it's something that I'm working on right now is is why am I not satisfied? What is it that satisfies Krish? What what fulfills Krish? Um, And I think the thing that fulfills me is living to my purpose. And I have to make sure now that whenever I feel depressed or whenever I feel really down, and often people don't even know Chris. Chris is this bubbly, vibrant character. They don't know that I struggle. That Chris is like, oh, the one who's always doing these crazy stuff to help others. They don't know that, guess what? First and foremost, he helps himself before he does anything else. So I think for me to fulfill and to stay really satisfied, I have to fulfill my purpose and to stay connected to that frequency of my most authentic, unique self. Um, so yeah. that's my answer. It's not a tangible yeah. thing. but no, it's, it's powerful. It's powerful. I mean, you've been on one, one hell of a journey, boy. You, you really have. And I guess the last thing is, I mean, from, again, from being a young man in his teens, uh, or getting to 19 and the rejection from, from soccer, you know, the work you do with Tales to Inspire, you know, meeting the, the homeless person who gave you the, the great, tagline i do like that you know say it again is it the um stories pictures that make up this book we call life yeah i mean that that is a great great tagline so so what's the greatest bit of advice you give to to others about how to to live their best life um greatest bit of advice oh man you really asked them for me that's two out of two mate well done you know what you know i did this i'm going to tell you why i did this deliberately it was it was a little not bit bit tongue-in-cheek with you but whenever you end your podcast i listen to the questions how you end it i'm like if chris ever has me on those are tough questions so if if he comes on my podcast first i've got to get hit him with the harder questions because yeah they're not easy but but hey what, what piece of advice would you give to either a young soccer player young professional sports person someone who is coming through extreme adversity what's the biggest thing that you've learned on your journey that you feel would help someone else um i would be and this is something i didn't do when i was young is be authentic to yourself be honest to yourself be unique to yourself um respect others don't do things in the expense of others 
Do it based alongside others. Be the best version of yourself. Put a hundred. Oh wow! Put put a hundred percent in. Always put a hundred percent in, um, because then you know you know what I did my best. I could not have done anything else. And if you feel like you're in the frequency and you connected to yourself, don't let others doubt you. Others can judge you. However, no one knows you more than you. Um, I get judged all the time. But guess what? Half the time, I don't even know myself. So how can another person judge me? You know, so really be true to yourself. And of course, never, ever give up. Um, Never, ever give up. Changing direction is fine. But the difference between changing direction and giving up is huge. For example, if I had to change a job and I was going to quit, I'd say I've had enough. Quitting isn't the same thing as, you know what? I did my best at that job. I encourage as many people as I could, and I'm going to go on to a better place and a better job and ensure that the person who comes in is doing better. He's, he's going to get a, a fulfilled role. So quit. The, you've done the same thing. You've still quit the job. But are you quitting the job from a place of defeat or a place of victory? And your perspective on that is really important in your life. How do you how do you live your life? And is it the really being true to yourself and create value in even the darkest times, you know? Well, Chris, despite those being two challenging questions, you've answered them in the most eloquent way, which is I know is gonna gonna help others. So, you know, you've had a, an incredible journey from professional career in soccer to moon to America and the fantastic work you're doing with Tales Inspire. I'm looking forward to seeing your journey continue and you helping many more, many more lives. So Chris Patel from Tales Inspire, thank you for joining me today on the Overcame podcast. Thank you so much, mate. And and I'm so appreciative of you, Simon. I just have a moment to say how incredible you are since what, three, four months. It feels like I've known you for a lifetime. And that's a true connection as well. And and if people do want to learn more about Tales to Inspire, we're on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and obviously on our website at talestoinspire.com. And our podcast is Tales to Inspire. Thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast. To help spread this inspiring story, be sure to share it with your friends, hit the like button, and of course, subscribe to our channel so you won't miss out on any future episodes. We'd also love to hear how this story impacted you, so leave us a comment on whatever platform you're watching us from. To learn more about this episode, our guests, or Simon, head over to simonosimo slash podcast and sign up to receive the latest information delivered straight to your inbox. Once again, thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast.